Let's pray one more time together before we begin. Ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we uh, simply come before you again with hearts that are full of glory, Lord, and just excited and blessed by the things that you have given in your word and through your Son and in the gospel. Lord, we're just reminded again, Lord, of the glorious things that you have done. And so now we pray that you would give us a mind to pursue you and give us a heart to know you and give us a life that reflects your glory. Lord, we pray as we look at this all-important subject of personal revival, personal renewal, and how sin inhibits that, that you would strengthen us, Lord. I know in this church, Lord, there are, uh, there are many battles that are being fought on a myriad of different fronts, and so I pray that you would strengthen your people, Lord, that you would unleash, Lord, the power of your Spirit in our lives, because that is exactly what needs to happen, Lord, if we are going to uh, win the battle with indwelling sin. So help us, Lord, we pray, and to bless our time, come and um, visit us today powerfully through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you understand uh, from the pages of Scripture that it is not very long before in the Bible we encounter the doctrine of sin. Uh, it doesn't take long in the story of the Bible to see that sin rears its ugly head. And what better place do we see that in but in Genesis chapter 3, where we are given uh, a situation where our parents, our uh, forefathers, if you would, in the faith, Adam and Eve, fell into transgression, and the Garden of Eden really is a picture of what God intended for man and all the corrosive and the adverse effects of sin and how that distorts and perverts and hinders God's good intentions for mankind. Uh, what you see is a paradisical state where everything that God does, to use His own words, was very good. Uh, and then because of the entrance of sin into the world, all of that goodness, in a sense, was lost, at least was marred and corrupted. Man, who had a perfect functioning knowledge and a perfect understanding of himself, a perfect understanding of the world around him because he had a perfect understanding of God, lost that knowledge. And now the radical effects of sin are seen through what uh, is called the noetic effects of sin. That is how, the, how sin has darkened and tainted the mind and the thought process of man. Man, if you think about the garden uh, situation, was really in a perfect environment. There was no sinful influence. There was nothing that was wrong with his environment. Now, because of the dominion of sin, we live in a world that is full of sin. Our environment has been completely corrupted through sin. And so again, we see the, the loss of paradise. Those amazing creatures that Adam named, just for one example, you think of all the dominion that he had over the creatures he was able to name, and all of those things have now become caged away in zoos, and we relegate those things to the jungle so that they don't, they don't interact with society because of the dread and the hostile fear that was instilled in them after the fall. In other words, you have evidence of the radical effects of sin everywhere. The earth itself went from perfect conditions 
to after the fall, really making this place extremely perilous, if you think about it. I mean, you can think about uh, everything from earthquakes and hurricanes to droughts to meteors to solar flares. Um, I was just reading a story the other day about uh, the super volcano at Yellowstone National Park that has the capacity to wipe out literally half of the nation in a matter of days. Um, that's an interesting thought. <laughs> How do we live after we know something like that, right? Well, of course, we know who's in control. But it really just testifies to the fact that whether we're thinking of things on a cosmic level or whether we're thinking of things on a microscopic level, I mean, think about the effects of sin just within your own body, the infectious, innumerable infectious diseases, uh, the diseases that threaten our lives. Everything around us tells us that our environment has changed. Everything has changed. So now, now we've gone from paradise to living with fear and dread virtually on every side and all because of sin. Humanity, think of uh, just what man was intended to be. Mankind was made in the image of God. He was endowed with the greatest dignity. He was the pinnacle of God's creation. And yet, that capacity to bear God's image has been corrupted. I think that's maybe the worst thing I can think about the fall. The fact that man who was to be an image bearer of God has lost the capacity to image God the way he should have. So that now he has decided to image other things supremely above everything else is himself. We were really meant to and designed to propagate the sovereignty of God, the image of God, the glory of God through a peaceful and a productive and a pious life as we walked with God in the cool of the day. But that tranquility, that peace, again, because of sin, has been compromised. You, you see that from the earliest pages of the Bible. I mean, right after Genesis chapter 3, and you start wondering, like, practically how bad was the fall? Well, it doesn't take long before you get to Genesis chapter 4 where you have the treachery of Cain as he murders his brother Abel. And then after that, you have it going uh, uh, to a sociological level where you have then a, uh, an explanation that Cain's descendants went on to build godless cities. All of a sudden, sin goes from an individual act to really a metropolis of godlessness. And it has been that way ever since. And it will con continue to be that way so long as we live in this present evil age. In other words, we have to grapple with sin. We can't ignore sin. It doesn't help, as the seeker-sensitive churches have attempted to do, to trivialize sin, to minimize sin, to talk about sin as being less heinous than what it really is. When you think about what has happened in the history of American evangelicalism, Think about the theology. When I think about theology, I think of vocabulary. If you just go back a few hundred years in the time of the church to the time of the Puritans, then you will see that much of the language of the Puritans' hatred of sin has all but disappeared on the landscape of evangelical thought. They used words like reprehensible, odious, lecherous, hideous, monstrous, to describe sin. 
And today, we have psychologized sin. We have, as I'm going to point out, secularized sin. And that begs the question. We should probably start by giving ourselves a reminder of what precisely is sin? How do we define sin? You say, well, that's real basic theology. (laughs) You're right, it is basic, but at the same time, some of the most basic things in the Scripture, apparently, we still cannot get right. And we still write as if we have a misunderstanding of sin. And so let me give you a basic definition of sin out of 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, and it's this. Sin is lawlessness. That is to say that sin is the deviation from the standard of God. It is a deviation from the law of God. It is a deviation, uh, as some theologians have put it, it is a contradiction of the glory of God. It is going off from God's perfections, God's standards, God's glory, God's person. That's what sin is. And if we don't understand this, then we don't understand how to remedy our sin. If we start defining sin in other ways, then we will find alternative ways to remedy our sin problem. That's why we have to have a biblical worldview of sin, a harmatology that is rooted in the pages of Scripture, not in popular pop psychology. You might sell a lot of books talking about the, the psychiatrics of sin, but you won't, make a, you won't gain a lot of ground with God. That's the problem. And so we have to understand that because sin is spiritual, meaning it derives from its, its defection from the spiritual perfections of God, it only has a spiritual remedy. And the Bible says that sin is lawlessness, which means that by sinning, we become guilty of breaking the law of God. That's important only because of this. In much of, of, of what is spoken about today of sin, sin has been uh, changed into something else. We've gone from guiltiness to a sense of shame. And I, I really get this from David Wells in his book, Losing Our Virtue, which if you have not read that book, you need to read that book to really get a handle on what has happened in our own lifetime in terms of a a view of sin and why we have all of these market-driven, consumer-driven, seeker-sensitive-driven models of church. A lot of it goes back to our view of sin. We stop looking at sin as divine guilt, meaning guilt that has been given to us by our Creator because of our sin. It has been imputed to us because of our breaking of God's law. And instead, sin has boiled down to emotions. We feel a sense of shame, and therefore we're guilty. But that is not what guilt is all about. Guilt is not the result of feeling something. Let me just uh, quote David Wells here to help us with this. Because I am convinced, and I've written on my notes here, when sin turns into shame in this sense, we lose the gospel. David Wells says, in the psychiatric literature, as well as in the wider culture, the transition to the language of shame from that of guilt really signals the secularization of our moral life. What it suggests is that any moral discomfort 
any inward pains that are the result of our actions should be construed as relational problems, not moral ones. They should be resolved, listen now, along horizontal lines or horizontal plane of psychological understanding rather than the vertical realm of theological knowledge. It is we who will dissolve our own shame, not God. It is we who will do it by our technique. For when all is said and done, what is awry is simply the way that we are viewing ourselves. But sin is not primarily the way we view ourselves. Sin is the way that God views us. That is what it's all about. Man's problems are fundamentally religious. They are not psychological. They are not grounded and rooted in environment. And the reason why this is so important, folks, is because when we don't understand what sin is, then we will come up with alternative ways of dealing with our sin, therapy, technique, treatment of every stripe. Now, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in chapter 2, verse 21, because I think there's an application here. If you know the argument of Galatians chapter 2, uh, the book of Galatians, you know that what Paul is arguing against is a, legaliz- a legalism of the Pharisees. The legalism of the Pharisees said that if you did X, Y, and Z, you can be accepted before God. What's the, what's the result? Works-based righteousness. And when we don't deal with our sin biblically, all that we amount to is a works-based righteousness, is a legalism, is a technique, a method, a treatment for how we ourselves are going to overcome our sinful setbacks. That is not a gospel-centered view of sin. That is a man-centered view of sin. And uh, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. See what he's saying? If we can remedy our own sinful problems, then Jesus died for nothing. That's what he's saying. Whether you're taking it from the ancient heresy of the Pharisees in legalism and the Judaizers, and second, second temple legalism, or whether you're looking at our context today, which is really nothing more than a moralistic, deistic, therapeutic Christianity, the result is the same, that the grace of God has been set aside for law, for a system of man-made works that will get us out of our own trouble. This has everything to do with how we battle sin spiritually, how we are going to be renewed, how we're going to be renewed. So we have to look at sin honestly, and therefore I want to look at sin, but from three different angles, and I want to focus on the latter one. Number one, I want to look at the power of sin. Number two, I want to look at the presence of sin. And number three, I want to look at overcoming indwelling sin. So number one, It's important for us to understand the power of sin. Sin is a killer. What is the power of sin? That sin will put you to death. That's the power of sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins will die. 
And certainly the principle there is that if we go unredeemed in this life because of our sin and our guilt and our transgression of God's law, we will die spiritually and we will become eternally undone. But there's also a principle here that if we refuse to obey, we will experience on a practical level a death-like experience in the Christian life. Uh, Romans chapter 8, 13, I think, is pointing to this very thing. He says, after showing us in Romans 8 that the way to overcome sin is through the Spirit, he reminds us, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. And he's talking to believers. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. It is by necessity that you will experience spiritual death. And then he says, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh or the deeds of the body, you will live. And that's because nothing will zap your communion with God faster than sin, right? Your fellowship, your zeal, your worship, your capacity to fellowship with other people, nothing will kill and you will experience a death-like experience in your Christian walk through sin. It will inhibit you. It will hinder you. It will set you back. It will trip you up, just like the book of Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 12 with me because I think the author of Hebrews speaks in the same train of thought when he says in Hebrews chapter 1, he points this out, and he also is showing us here the, um, the presence of sin as we're going to see, but he says, therefore, verse 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, sin is going to weigh you down. It's going to trip you up. And here he says, look, you have to make an honest assessment of the sin. And there's a lot of debate as to what is the sin because it's articular. So what is, is there a particular sin? And I think a case can be made that yes, each one of us have maybe that one sin that trips us up more than others. And as one theologian said, you don't want mine and I don't want yours. Sin is also powerful in that it is productive. You see that from Galatians chapter 5 in the deeds of the flesh. Jesus speaks to this very thing when he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. In other words, the power of sin is always evidenced in the deeds that we commit. Uh, the next thing is not just the power of sin, and really the reality is, is you can talk about the power of sin all day long. I mean, I could do a message just on the power of sin because it's so pervasive. But let, let's get more to the, the point that I want to arrive at, and that is next, the enduring presence of sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, if you would, because I don't think there's a greater chapter on all of this than Romans chapter 6, because it shows us the relationship of the believer to sin. And what we see here is that the dominion, the power of sin, has been 
broken in the life of the believer. Look at uh, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. And so grace is never a license to sin. That's exactly what he's saying. So if you ever encounter any Christian that says, we're under grace, and what that means is that I can sleep with my girlfriend, okay, then what you should respond with is, then you are still in bondage to your sin. And you are still a slave. You have not experienced what the Bible calls freedom. And so he is deluded. So just point that out because it was uh, relevant in Paul's time and it is relevant in our time as well. This antinomian spirit that says, all things are lawful for me. I can do anything that I want because I'm under grace. I'm not under law. It's a complete opposite. He says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So that shows us As we talk about the presence of sin, that shows us the ongoing deceptive nature of sin, that it's constantly trying to deceive us to live for it when in fact we have died to it. Next, look down at Romans uh, 6.12. Because he shows us not just the ongoing deceptive nature of sin, but also the he also shows us the ongoing temptation to sin. And that's why he has to admonish us not to do it. Therefore, do not let... Sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. What's the difference? The difference is that prior to Christ, you could not help but let sin reign in your mortal body. You could not help but be under the dominion of sin. You were, as the prophet said, one who drank iniquity like water. You breathed sin like air. It came so natural to you. It was like a bird. He doesn't, it was like a, a, not a bird, but a fish. It was like a fish that doesn't even know he's wet. It's like a bird. He doesn't know he's in the atmosphere. It's just so natural to them. Same thing with a sinner. It just comes to us naturally to do it, to live this way. We don't even think about it. He says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. By the way, verse 13, what that is saying is that these believers were in fact battling and struggling with presenting the members of their body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Now, they weren't articulating that, but Paul is telling them, this is what you're doing. In essence, you are presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness. And again, he says, by contrast, this is what you should do. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. There's the dominion of sin that has been broken. For you are not under law, but under grace. You're no longer trying to earn your own righteousness. Being under law means that you're trying to exhibit your own self-righteousness. And he says, you're not under that anymore, but you are under grace, which means grace has liberated you. Even though sin continues to tempt you. And he also, therefore, is very honest about our ongoing struggle with sin, which this is really what we need to get to. But look, at, look with me at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 18, he shows us the ongoing struggle with sin. This is the natural progression of the book of Romans. We go from, uh, where did sin come from? Chapter 5, Adam, and through Adam, sin entered in the world, and death through sin. And chapter sin. And what has Christ done about sin? He has broken the dominion of sin over the believer's life. And chapter 7, and what is the current uh, nature of our relationship with sin is that we live in tension. There is a struggle, an ongoing struggle with the presence of sin. 
Romans 7.18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing, is, the doing of good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I don't want. But if I'm doing the very thing that I don't want, watch this, this is a very, very important phrase right here. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So there is an ongoing, indwelling sin in every believer. And by the way, uh, uh, Romans 7 verse 20 there, that phrase, I am no longer the one doing it, in my opinion, trumps any argument that what Paul is looking at in Romans chapter 7 is a non-believer, because that is a popular uh, view Uh, which is not the traditional view of Romans 7, but it is a view today. And many, many good scholars would argue that Romans chapter 7 is not talking about the struggle of a believer with sin. It's actually talking about a Jew pre-conversion and his battle to try to obey the law of God. The problem with that is that how on earth can we say of an unbeliever, verse 20, it is no longer he who is doing it. Everything in the Bible tells you that it is you that is doing it. But for the believer, it is the principle of our unredeemed humanness that continues to struggle and battle and grapple with sin. And the fact that there is an ongoing struggle, it shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that Paul gives us a direction to mortify our sin. Look at uh, Colossians chapter 3, because really, um, if you've heard nothing up to this point, Listen to this because this is, this is very important because it also sweeps aside any sort of um, secularization of sin, any, any sort of uh, psych- psychologizing of sin. <laughs> I don't know how you psychologize the, uh, the Apostle Paul's words here in Colossians chapter 3, which now I read from the ESV because the ESV is more literal here than the NASB, at least at the beginning of verse 5. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And I I use the ESV because the NASB says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. I don't know how you can get that out of the imperative that's found there in the Greek. I think put to death is the simple translation of that Greek phrase, nekrosate, just one word. Necrosate un means, therefore, put to death. That's what it means. It even has that word necros, which means death. So somehow we have to put to death what he's saying here. Put to death what is earthly in you. When he says what is earthly in you, he means what belongs to the present evil age. What does belong to the present evil age? Well, he gives us a vice list right here. Sexual immorality. And some would argue that sexual immorality and purity, which go together, uh, is mentioned first as a form of priority because, let's face it, we live in a sex-crazed, pornographic, sexually intoxicating culture. And he says, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, my dear friends, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. 
You won't find very many appeals today in consumer-driven, secular, sort of seeker-sensitive, lukewarm, sort of weak and shallow, non-doctrinal type churches. You won't find very many references to the wrath of God. Because what does the wrath of God mean? The wrath of, uh, orges just simply means fury, anger. It is the anger of God unleashed. In a a secularized culture, we don't like to think of God as angry. (laughs) We want a God that's happy and nice, and we want a God with mittens on. We don't want a God that gets upset because that is, after all, just an old Victorian sort of, you know, Dante's Inferno sort of depiction of a wrathful God, and it's so passe that it just doesn't work theologically anymore. Well, I'm sorry. Of course it works because it's in the Word of God. And uh, it just shows us how serious the wrath of God is. I mean, you consider what is the wrath of God? Think about what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God is God's vengeance being unleashed not on sin, but on sinners for their sin. And therefore, the wrath of God is very, very sobering indeed. So we see the power of sin. We see the presence, the ongoing presence of sin that is undeniable. But now we come to, so how do we win the battle with indwelling sin? And for that, let's go with the scripture that we we began with, which is Galatians 5. Galatians 5, beginning verse 16 through 17. Other reason why the the contemporary view or the um, non-traditional view of Romans chapter 7 that says that Romans 7 is not depicting Christian struggle, the reason why that doesn't work is because most uh, Romans uh, scholars and Galatians scholars would They would all confess Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 17 are parallels to Romans 7. In other words, it's kind of like uh, this this little cluster of verses is kind of like a a small commentary. Uh, It's like a summary of the whole chapter of Romans 7. So he summarizes it for us very succinctly right here. What he does in three or four chapters in, in, in the book of Romans, he does in a few verses right here in Galatians. So if you want the cliff notes, here we go. Galatians chapter 5 or 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. And why does he give that injunction? Why does he give that directive to the church of Galatia in this, at this point right here? Well, notice what he says here. Uh, again, it comes out of a notion of antinomianism, an ocean, a notion of thinking that the grace of God is a license for licentiousness, is a license to sin, because, look at verse 13, You were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. See, this church has turned to infighting, bickering, devouring each other. You know, what's the color of the carpet going to be? What kind of, are we going to get pews or chairs? Are we doing contemporary or hymns? Traditional or contemporary music? What are we going to do, right? And I mean, that's, <laughs> that's taking it lightly. I've heard of deacons in the parking lot getting in a fist fight. So this can get really out of hand. 
Do not bite or devour one another. What's the remedy for antinomianism? What is the remedy for indwelling sin? Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. That you may not do the things that you please is a parallel of what we read in Romans chapter 7. The good that I want to do, that I don't find how to die. That I don't do. And the very evil I don't want to do, I end up doing that. It's exactly what he's saying here. So that you do not do the things that you please. The things that you would want to do if you imagine that you're walking with God, if you imagine that you're actually walking by the Spirit, the flesh inhibits the Spirit. Oh, the Spirit might be willing, but the flesh is weak. And if you submit to the flesh, then the weakness of the flesh will debilitate the power of the Spirit in the believer. In the believer. Therefore, we have to acknowledge that this is a spiritual war that we are in. This is a spiritual battle. Remember here that the word flesh, where it says the desires of the flesh, refers to that principle of our unredeemed humanness. It refers to all that remains sinful in us. It refers to that principle, the law of sin that wages war in our members, that ongoing thing. After all, I mean... You know how irrational sin is? I mean, sin is completely irrational. It doesn't rationalize. It doesn't think. It doesn't, okay, if I do this, the consequence might be this. So it makes sense. Clearly, it makes sense that I don't do this. And yet you end up doing it. I mean, how did sin begin with the most irrational thing that ever occurred? You had an angel decked in beauty, glory, splendor. And he was given a certain amount of prerogative in heaven. He was allowed to be part of the praise, the worship of the eternal almighty God. And in an act of insane, irrational rebellion, he said, I will be like the most high. And he was cast down to the earth. Sin is absolutely irrational. Adam, I will give you this entire beautiful globe. You ever seen those commercials? You know, they try to hook you into some, some, uh, some vacation or you can take out in the Bahamas or something, right? And they make it just look so incredibly beautiful, of course, and everybody on the commercial is beautiful, right? And everything is beautiful. And, you know, even though it's a third world country, don't worry, you know, the pickpockets are out of the picture and, you know, the whole thing. They tried to present this paradisical state of, you know, affairs that you can take part in. Well, God actually gave Adam paradise. It wasn't a cheesy infomercial. It was reality. Adam, you can have all of this beautiful paradise that I've set before you if you just obey in this one thing. Do not eat of that one tree. And what happened well, the rest is redemptive history. <laughs> you saw what that unleashed. And therefore, we have to fight. But also want to, I also want to point out this. How the Apostle Paul begins talking about our war with indwelling sin. Does he begin with the positive or a negative? 
Does it begin by saying, here is your list of don'ts? Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Then you'll be a good Christian boy or a good Christian girl. No! It is not a legalistic duty. It is not a legalistic list of do's and don'ts, right? There is one supreme imperative that is given in verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. That's first. It is first the pursuit of something and then the prohibition of something, right? Because it's not enough, and Paul knows this, it is not enough just simply to tell you these things are forbidden for you, right? It's exactly what God did to Adam in the garden. Adam, you may freely eat. That's a positive injunction. Go ahead and eat of all this. Take pleasure in all of this. And then the prohibition came after but of this one tree don't eat. Same thing here. Walk by the Spirit. That's a positive injunction. Do this. And then the prohibition comes after that, that he should uh, not carry out the desires of the flesh. And then prohibitions after that implied in the, the deeds of the flesh. Verse 19 and following all the vice lists that he gives there. But he begins with this supreme injunction, walk by the Spirit. And so, we go from an honest appraisal of having a war with indwelling sin to understanding what is the greatest weapon against indwelling sin, right? What is the greatest weapon? It is not our own man-made systems and boundaries and lines and things that we put for ourselves, checks and balances for holiness. It is actually a positive pursuit of spiritual satisfaction. That's what it is. So we have to ask the question. The Apostle Paul says, and he commands us all, walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean, after all, to walk by the Spirit? Well, the term walk, paripateo, simply means uh, the way that you order your life, the way that you conduct yourself, your manner of life, your lifestyle, your conduct. That is what he means by walk. Walk, and then he uses this prepositional phrase, by the Spirit, by the Spirit. Uh, some would interpret that in the Spirit, but here I think it is, is relating uh, uh, a means of how we do it. So in other words, it's communicating how we do it, by means of the Spirit. And what does it mean, therefore, to walk by means of the Spirit? Uh, I thought for many, many years of my Christian life, I thought that what that meant was that I had to wait around for some emotion. I had to wait around for some experience. I had to contrive some deep spiritual experience. I needed to weep. I needed to howl. I needed to fast. I needed to uh, be more zealous than the person next to me. I needed to, you know, uh, uh, evangelize the world, and maybe I'll get the buzz that I'm looking for. Well, true spirituality is not about a buzz, It is about having a principled life of holiness. Uh, Do you see how much is done in the name of the Spirit in many places of the world? I mean, just think of the prosperity preachers. Think about uh, the, the, the wacky Pentecostal churches and how much in shambles those churches often are with the extortion going on and 
the abuse of power, and everything else. I'm not saying that Reformed churches are exempt, but I am saying that much of what's done in the name of the Spirit is actually false fire, right? Wasn't there a conference? That, oh, never mind. <clears throat> Winning the war against indwelling sin happens when we choose to walk according to the Spirit. Now, look with me at Galatians 5.22, because... I honestly think I was making this concept more difficult than it is, walk by the Spirit. Because notice that the Apostle Paul does not, he does not get into a dynamics of, a, of some sort of esoteric, subjective, emotive, sort of experiential dynamic here. No, as a matter of fact, he, he tells us a simple metaphor about fruit. <laughs> he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is X, Y, and Z. And so he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What is he saying here? This is very deep. This is, this is, this is, this is deep Pauline theology, okay? Uh, it, it's, it's, it's just as deep as predestination or election. Just as profound. Because what he's talking about here is, 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 is really practical. It's what we go through every day. It's what we experience in the Christian life every moment. And so what he's saying is something like this. When we choose to pursue love, we will not become hateful. Right? Now just, just follow in the text. When we choose to pursue joy, we will not despair. When we choose to pursue peace, we will not be hostile on Facebook or wherever else. When we choose to pursue patience, we will not be irritable. When we choose to pursue uh, 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 kindness, we will not be cold and indifferent. When we choose to pursue goodness, we will not be malicious. When we choose to pursue faithfulness, we will not be double-minded. When we choose to pursue gentleness, we will not be harsh with those that we love. When we choose to pursue self-control, we will not give in to dissipation. Many of the adversaries that the Apostle Paul faced during his lifetime had to do, again, with libertinism. The idea that we can do whatever we want, whatever we desire, because, you know, the Corinthian slogan, all things are lawful for me, right? But in reality, for Paul, there's only one sense in which this slogan is allowed. He only allows us to be excessive in one sense, and it's this, this principle here. Look at uh, 523. Against such things, there is no law. There's no prohibition. In other words, you can be as righteous as you want to be. There's no excess of the Spirit and its fruit in your life. You can pursue and manifest these things as much as you want. Why? Because the principle is this. I guess you could put it a different way. Pursuing Christ-likeness has no limits. But even more, it's, it's not just that there is no law against these things, but in fact that by walking by the Spirit, we actually fulfill the law. 
It was actually Augustine who said long ago, the law was given so that grace might be sought and grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. Romans chapter 13 verse 1 says it all. Love does no wrong. The positive attribute of love in your life expresses itself in prohibitions to do evil. It's a byproduct, in other words, as you can tell. Therefore, I guess we can ask the question, how do we do this? How does, does Paul just tell us to do this? Does he ever tell us how to do it? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Just as a parallel, and we'll end there, but Colossians chapter 3 is a masterful parallel to the fruit of the Spirit because in one sense he's sort of giving us a, another clue. We can add another piece to the puzzle and he leaves us with a virtual environment of spiritual strength and fortitude. Colossians chapter 3, this is the classic text for put off and put on, right? So if you ever discipling anybody, you ever teaching anybody how to walk with God, you ever want to sit down with a, a sister or a brother, and you guys want to go through practical holiness, how do we do this Christian thing, how do we practically, how do we grow in grace, Colossians chapter 3 is your friend, because it's as easy as put off and put on. It's that easy. Look at uh, Colossians 3.8, it says, but now all of you must put them all aside. So it begins there, and that word there for put aside literally means like disrobing, taking off a coat and laying it down. He says, put aside anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do is to be consistent with who we are. So it's the same thing that he tells the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, are you not behaving as mere men? What is he saying there? You're not mere men. Do you not know this about yourself, that Christ dwells in you? The biggest problem in Christianity is that Christians don't know that they're Christians. We don't know that the old self has been laid aside. And there we go, picking up the old self again. So we live in contradiction to what actually is that we actually have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. The old man is dead, done, gone away with. Same thing as Galatians chapter 6 verse 14 when he says that the world has been crucified to him and him to the world. We are dead men and women walking. Paul leaves us with this practical exhortation. And again, look with me to Colossians 3, uh, 12 through 16. I just found this to be so helpful because it's like not only does it tell us what to do, but he also tells us, I think, if, you're, if you have eyes to see here, he also tells us how do we do it. So verse 12, he says what to do. He says, so as those who have been chosen of God... See, so you understand the basis of your holiness and the basis of your sanctification is your election. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on all of these wonderful virtues of compassion and kindness, of patience, of bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Boy, that's a major test, is it not? It's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to work on my personal, individual character. It's another thing to say, okay, I'm going to treat people different. <laughs> That's why 1 John 
focuses so much on how do you treat the brethren. Because in an act of self-examination, how you treat the brethren is a very good barometer of how you are actually walking with Christ. If you don't love the brethren, you don't love God. It's that simple. And it's that challenging. It's that, it's that potent. Uh, I don't know if you know this about the Apostle John, but he is the apostle of black and white statements. <laughs> right? There is truth and there is error. Period. There's no nuance for John. He sees darkness and light, truth and error, spirit of God, spirit of Antichrist, eternal life, eternal destruction. Very black and white. And so for John, what he's saying is this, you don't have a love for the brethren, really? What that means is you don't have a love for God, period. Wow. I won't lighten the blow either. I'll let you have to go wrestle with it. Actually, get a few commentaries. Hopefully you're scared enough to have to go do that. Because it should purify us. It should. It should. He says, beyond all these things. And now he's going to get to the how. He says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And watch this. Let the peace of Christ. That's how. So how to, number one, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So how does it begin? How do we begin to win the war within we begin to win the war within, brothers and sisters, as we walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, partly what that means is that you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. In other words, you give the saving, irenic grace of God reign supreme in your heart. It means that all other competitors are set aside. You don't let any conflicting and you don't let any competing allegiances into your heart. First, you put Christ as Lord in your heart, and then you're ready to give a defense for your faith, right? And the same thing for our walk with God. First, we let the peace of Christ rule in our heart, and then we manifest all these wonderful virtues. The peace of Christ, to which indeed you were called in one body, one body, and be thankful. So unity and the pursuit of unity is one way that the church collectively will not fall into the, the pitfalls of the flesh. Verse 16, second how-to. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and also let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And of course, you know as a pastor, as a preacher, I'm going to jump up and down on this one because <laughs> it's a reference to the Word and using the Word. So the Word of God has to be flowing richly within you. There's no other way because then you have no other source. If your well is empty, then you're going to be spiritually dry. You're going to be malnourished. You're not going to be full of goodness and knowledge and wisdom and all of these things. He says here, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing the, with thankfulness in your hearts. Now, I didn't point this out, but over and over in the course of this cluster of verses, the personal pronouns are plural. What that means is that Paul envisions an ecclesiastical element, a church dimension that has to happen. You want to get victory over the flesh, you got to do it in the context of the community of the local church. You can't do it on your own. 
You've got to have a brother or a sister who is going to teach and admonish you with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with you and, and being thankful with you to God. I mean, when was the last time you did this? When was the last time you took somebody aside? I'm not just talking about rebuke, but just for encouragement. When you said, let's meet, and the purpose of our meeting is not just to, you know, throw up on each other, our problems. <laughs> that, that's part of it, right? We do live in a Genesis 3 world. I'm not trying to excuse that. But when was the last time that you pulled someone aside, invited somebody into your home, went to, you know, the Christian embassy, uh, Starbucks, and had a serious spiritual meeting with a brother or sister where you sat them down for the purpose of, I am going to admonish this person, I'm going to teach this person, I'm going to receive from this person, I'm going to do this very thing, because this is, this is what happens when the Word of God is dwelling richly in your heart, then you're looking for avenues of fellowship, where you can divulge that rich Word of God to others. Walking by the Spirit, therefore, has less to do with the subjective nature of our emotions, how we feel, and more to do with the objective application of the Word of God to our lives, what we know. And I don't just mean intellectually, but also experimentally. The things that we test, the things that we try, the things that we apply in our lives. This is why Jesus gave us the Spirit in abundance in order to lead us. That is why we might, so that we might live in newness of life. This is what the new life looks like. The battle with the war within can be won only by the Spirit, only by walking by the Spirit, and then and only then, according to Paul's conclusions, when this is happening, then guess what? Romans 8, 14 and following then a blessed, infallible, divine assurance will fill your heart so that you will know that he is your father and that you are his child so that the spirit will cry naturally within you, Abba, Father. To the degree that we allow indwelling sin to reign in our bodies, to that degree... We will grieve the spirit of grace. We will allow our souls to be assaulted, just like Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, the passions of the flesh that wage war against our souls, and the embers of revival will be extinguished. I was so, uh, I was so blessed to hear that we were going to be reading Psalm 51 because of this study, and I thought, boy, that's perfect. Look at David. What a perfect example, right? Perfect example. This is a man crying out for revival because the embers of revival have been extinguished because of one act of stupidity. Actually, many acts. Think about what David did. Let's reflect on that just for a second as we close then. Think about what David did. I know we know about his adultery, but do you know about his murder? Do you know that every soldier that died that day on the battlefield should not have died? David has a lot of blood on his hands. And it's not just with what happened with Bathsheba. 
As many have pointed out, I mean, think about if you were Uriah's dad. The king killed my son for his wife. And so we see the gravity of his sin. We see the gross nature of his sin. But do you see how David is asking the Lord, revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Why do I mention that? Because there's hope. I don't know about you, but when I sin, the first thing that happens to me is a sense of hopelessness comes over you. You're defeated. You're deflated. You feel completely set back. You feel as if, wait a minute, (laughs) that was 20 years ago. And here I am again. Well, folks, listen. Realistic Christianity is not this super hyper-spirituality. It's just that. It's realistic. It's realizing that there's a real war within. And just when you start underestimating the nature and the power and the presence and the ongoing indwelling of sin, just when you begin to underestimate the flesh, boom, it rears its ugly head. And all of a sudden, you are shocked at what you've done. It is a battle, and there is no, there is no one silver bullet that will uh, make us immune to this. No, the reality is, is that in the Christian life, Scripture says that we have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. What that means is that all the life long, you will have to battle with the flesh. All the life long, you will have to make war. All the life long, you will need the ministry of the church to encourage you and hold you accountable and, 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 and keep you in the family. Outside of that, my dear friends, there is only death. And so I hope that this has encouraged you to look at these passages in a new light and know that there is so much hope for you and for me in our ongoing battle with sin. Father, well, we realize that we've not arrived. We say with the Apostle Paul once again in Philippians, we forget what lies behind. We press on to what lies ahead. We know that we have not arrived and we will not arrive in this place in, or in this age. We know that we will not arrive in this life. But, oh God, help us to run the race with endurance. Father, I ask that our sanctification would look like a marathon runner that understands the race that is set before him and that is not as much interested in a hundred-yard dash when he's got 25 miles to go, but is interested in the long haul, is interested in the steady application of discipline, which for us would mean the steady feasting on the normative means of grace in our life, the means of grace the preaching of your word, partaking of the Lord's Supper, the ministry of the local church, and Lord, ultimately, ministering to one another. And so, Lord, we just cry out to you. Revive us according to your word and let not thy spirit depart from us. In Jesus' name, amen.